Laura. If you would, grab your copy of Scripture, open to Luke chapter 14. Luke 14. If you need a Bible, there should be one right there in front of you. You can open to page 1202, 1203, and that will put you at Luke 14 so you can follow along with us. If you're here visiting this morning, uh, we're very grateful that you're here. We thank God for your presence with us. It's a great day for you to be visiting. If you are um, not a believer, if you're not a Christian, if you're just uh, sort of trying to figure things out, God has brought you here on a wonderful, wonderful day. This day, the text that we will deal with this morning uh, should uh, help you in many, many ways to see, maybe for the very first time, some amazing, unbelievable truths about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, and so one of the great advantages to that is that I know months in advance uh, what's coming. I know what's uh, ahead, and so I'm able to uh, prepare long times in advance and think a long time about the things that I know that are coming. And also, I'm also able to, when there's a particular text that I uh, know is coming our way that may be uh, a bit difficult or just uh, very, very important text for this fellowship, I'm also able to preach on Sunday night certain things that I feel will enable you as a body prepare your hearts to receive the text. And that's exactly what I have done in the previous weeks leading up to this morning. The text that I will read to you this morning is always, always considered one of the most difficult passages uh, in the New Testament. It's always uh, called one of the hard sayings of Jesus, but at the same time, it also is my life story. And um, it's not my life verse because if I were to write this underneath my signature or something like that and people went and looked it up, they would think I was crazy. But it is my testimony and my aim this morning is to hopefully allow the Spirit of God to work through me to open your eyes to see what I have seen out of this passage of Scripture. And if you are with us on Sunday nights, I apologize to those of you who work in Awana and all the various ministries that would pull you out of Sunday nights. You can go on the website and listen to, I believe the first sermon is um, uh, Love a Different Perspective. And then the following sermon would be on Psalm 19. If you listen to those two sermons, uh, it will help you put all of this together. So this morning, Luke 14, let's begin reading verse 25. Now the great multitude went with him, Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, His own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. 
So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Father, I pray this morning that you truly would give us ears to hear. Lord, help us, Lord God. Help us this morning to see the immense truth that is communicated here, Lord God. Help us to recognize, Father, that it is you, the King of kings and Lord of lords, walking in the flesh on this earth who spoke these words into existence for our benefit, Lord God, and for your glory. And I pray, Father, that you would manifest them in our lives in such a way that it will radically alter us from here forth. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, what I want you to think about, which has already struck you just by the reading of that passage of Scripture, is what on earth is Jesus talking about? What is all this hate your mother and father and your wife and your children and even yourself? And why is Jesus communicating to us this in, in such language? And, and what does this mean? Why does he say this? And, and before we can dissect it and get into it and figure out what's really going on here, I want you to first realize that this is God speaking. And God understands his creation. He understands our hearts. He understands how we're prone to wander. He understands how quickly we fade away and fizzle out and, and chase after lesser things. And so he speaks to us knowing full well how we are and, and the type of, of people that we are and our tendency to do that which we ought not do. And he also understands that throughout all of history, Christianity has been marked by some confusion. There's no confusion on God's part, but there's certainly confusion on our part. You don't have to look around the landscape of our uh, Christianity today very long to see the confusion that I speak of. And I want you to think of it this way. There's a, there's a tendency in Christianity today to exist as the decided those who have decided that they're going to follow Christ. They have decided that they want to be forgiven of their sin. They have decided that they want to attend church. They want to raise their kids right. They want to whatever the case may be. And so in one category are the decided. Then in another category, a quite smaller category, you have the devoted. And there's a huge difference between the decided and the devoted. And Jesus is drawing this distinction out in this passage. And He's teaching us what it means to be devoted as opposed to simply being decided. And so I pray that you will examine your heart as we go through this passage this morning. I want you to see, first of all, in verse 25, right off the bat, there's an amazing encouragement in this text. Jesus is is walking with this great multitude. They are there. This huge crowd of people is swarming around him. And as he's walking, the Bible says he turned and said unto them, if anyone come to me now, right there, we should just stop and acknowledge the fact that 
everything after this is going to be quite difficult to to grasp, certainly quite difficult to actually apply and live out in your life. But I want you to begin this morning by seeing that who is this invitation to? Anyone, literally anyone. Jesus knows that the vast majority of people in the crowd to which he's talking to, he doesn't turn from the crowd and talk to the twelve. He turns and talks to the entire crowd whom he knows is filled with people who have no intention of surrendering their life to him, but he makes the invitation to anyone who would come to him. That's the glorious thing about Christianity, is that it's open to anyone. And what makes Christianity so wonderful and so special is that the testimony of this very church, the testimony of so many of us here this morning, is that we were once regarded as the outcast, the most broken, the most hopeless, the most ridiculously uh, just wandering people. But God offers His invitation to anyone who will come. And we come to Him and we find help and healing and wholeness at the cross. And He rebuilds our lives for His glory. And so He gives it to anyone who will respond. Now, what does this this come to me mean? Well, it means that when you come to Jesus, you're going to embark on the most unpredictable journey that anyone could ever, ever embark on. Look at verse 26. He says, If anyone come to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, there may be a couple people in here who are like, Man, great, I got this. I hate my parents. <laughs> no, uh, you don't. So, so just back up a minute, Okay. Because, uh, unfortunately, you're, you, you got this wrong. You know, Jesus, when you read the New Testament, you read what he says, it's almost like he is constantly making absolutely sure that he's communicating all of the details of everything that he's asking us to do. Because if you remember just a chapter earlier, we, we ran into a passage of Scripture where there were people who were literally banging on the door. Jesus was talking about there'll come a time when the door is shut, when the narrow gate closes, when there'll no longer be an opportunity to come unto Him. And He described people banging on the door almost in, in, in disbelief, demanding to come in. Like, why can't I come in? Well, those people, the reason they have absolutely no right to say we never knew is because of texts like this. That you, you do, this isn't like when you, uh, are checking out of your hotel room and when you checked in, it was, you know, $59 a night, but then when you get the bill, it's like $82.50 and you're thinking, and there's taxes for, you know, carpet vacuuming and light bulbs and, I mean, how, they tax you for everything. So you, you, there's all these hidden fees. Well, it's not like that with Jesus. It's full disclosure. So why would Jesus use this word hate? Well, obviously he doesn't mean 
hate in the sense that we would often use that. We know that He's commanded us to honor our father and mother. We know that He he talks extensively about we're to love our spouses, uh, our husbands and wives, and we're to even love our enemies. So certainly He doesn't mean hate in that sense. He doesn't mean hate in the sense that we're to be actively hostile towards our family to be His disciple. This is not hate actively. This is hate comparatively. And there's a huge difference. So to describe this, let me uh, bring you to a text in Genesis 29 where many of you are familiar of the story of Jacob. And Jacob had two wives, Rachel and Leah. And Jacob fell in love with Rachel, this amazingly beautiful uh, woman that he desired to marry so badly. He went to her father Laban and asked for her hand in marriage. And Laban said, well, you have to work for seven years to earn her hand in marriage. And so he worked for seven years. And then on his marriage day, the day he was to be married, uh, he, he celebrated the wedding. And I guess Laban put some, you know, extra something in the punch and so Jacob didn't really know what was going on he woke up the next morning and he was married to the other daughter Leah instead of Rachel so he went back to Laban furious and he said I want to marry Rachel and so her father said fine another seven years and you can marry Rachel Now, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 29 that those seven years that he worked slave labor to win the right to marry Rachel were like days because his love was so great for Rachel. It also tells us that he did, in fact, love his wife, Leah. The Bible says in Genesis 29, 31, that when he saw Leah... When, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, He enabled her to conceive and, and Rachel remained childless. Now, where the Bible says that Leah was not loved, not loved. That is the Hebrew word for hate. Same word translated in the New Testament when Jesus says, hate your mother and father. Same word. So, was, was Leah hated by her husband? Well, no, because the previous verse says Jacob's love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. You see, it's love and hate comparatively. You understand what I'm saying? He loved Leah. It just didn't compare to the love that he had for Rachel. In other words, we love a lot of things, but then something changes in our life and something comes into our life and we no longer, you know, I mean... I loved women when I was single. I loved to date. I loved to... Then I met Lisa. And all that love went away and focused on one person. You see, it wasn't that I... It it wasn't that I no longer uh, cared about anything else in my life. It was just that this one thing overrode everything else. And so it's a comparative... It's a comparative hatred. Compared to one, it's like hatred. Now... What, what, is the, what is God trying to get us to see here? He's trying to get us to see that all of these loves, though different, all pale in comparison to the love that God has for us and that we have for Him as our Heavenly Father. Notice that He, he brings out the love between a husband and a wife. 
Well, that is a, a unique and special love. But it's also different from a love between a, a father and a mother and their children, which is also different from a love that's between maybe brothers and sisters. And so all these loves are different, but Jesus brings them all out, even the love that we have for ourselves. He brings them all out to say that all of these different types of love, all of these different facets of love, all put together equal nothing compared to the love that you will have for me and that I have for you. Jesus brings them all together. Now, think of it this way, that all day long today, as you're outside on this beautiful day, the stars are shining. You just can't see them because they're overpowered by the brilliance of the sun. And so there may be other loves, but you won't be able to see them next to the brilliance of the sun. So that's a way to understand what Jesus is communicating here with this word hatred. Now think about this. Why didn't he just say, because he could have, Jesus could have turned to the crowd and he could have said, to be my disciple, you need to put me above all other things. You need to make me your number one priority. That would have been a simple way of saying this that everyone would have just understood immediately, but that's not what he said. Now, why? Why does he use this language? Why does he bring the context of love versus hatred into this teaching? Well, it's because in love, there's emotion. In other words, he's saying that you're not my disciple unless you are emotionally connected to me. That it's more than just a decision, but it is devotion. And so he wants you and me to see that a relationship with Jesus Christ is one that is emotional. It is one that, 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 that wraps around our affections and that it encompasses and overshadows all other types of love. Now, You've heard me say many times in the past, especially around Father's Day, one of my favorite things to say to fathers is that love is action. Because, you know, we dads have a problem with that sometimes. And we need to be reminded of that continually. Well, apart from action, there can be no love. That's true. That's true. I mean, you can't just, if you just think in your mind how much you love your wife, that's not doing her a whole lot of good. You got to say it. You got to buy her flowers. You got to take her on a date. You have to act on it. So obviously there is action. You must act on love. But action apart from emotion is insufficient. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. In other words, you could do the most heroic act for God Apart from emotion, apart from love, it's of no consequence. Now, when we get through this today, my prayer is that when you read the most common passages in the New Testament, they will strike you as utterly and completely different. Like the switch will just go off in your head. Let me give you an example. Think about the great commandment. Now, Jesus says... When he's pressed, what is the most important of all the commandments? Here's what he says. He says, all the law of the prophets hang on this one thing. 
Then he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, what does that mean? All the law and the prophets hang on this. In other words, all of the duties, all of the things, all of the actions, all of what is required of you and me as believers, it all hangs on what? Love. You see, you can't separate them. So what he's saying is, he's, he's actually just backing up and giving us a picture of exactly what happened with the rich young ruler. Because the rich young ruler responded, well, I've kept all of the commandments. I've done all that. I'm good. And Jesus said, well, then sell all your stuff and follow me. And he walked away sorrowful. Why? He had done the actions, but he wasn't willing to connect emotionally. He wasn't willing to embark into a love relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is the difference. And so we see right off the bat that it's a, it's a very unpredictable journey. It's not what we would often think is ahead. And in most churches, you would never, ever hear anybody preach on this text. Never. Because it's an unnatural action. It's not natural. You know, I say all this and, and I read this and then the response ought to be in our heart this morning is, well, wait a minute. Now, how do I get this kind of love? How do I get a love for God that just overshadows all other loves? Now, it will, it will improve all the other loves. It will bring them up to a new level, but it will overshadow them. How do I do that? I mean, what do you do? Do you just think about it, focus on it, concentrate on it? Because you sort of know just intuitively that you can't make yourself love something. You can't just force love upon your own heart. You can't muster up genuine love. It just doesn't work that way. Even in the smallest little simple things, right? I, I often think of this illustration in my life. You know, when it's getting to be summertime and, and I might come over and visit you at your house and, and many of you in the church, I've, I've had this experience happen so many times, you'll, I'll come over and you'll be so excited and you're like, hang on, and you'll run out the back door and then you come back in and You've got this amazing fresh tomato that's been growing in your backyard and it's just perfect and, I mean, ripe and unbelievable. I mean, it just looks so delicious and you'll offer me some of it and you'll slice it up and some of you like to just eat it just like it is. Some of you make a tomato sandwich. Some of you put some salt and pepper. It's disgusting. It's gross. I hate tomatoes. Hate them. And here's the thing. They look delicious. I want to like them. And every year and a half or so, I just force myself. I think, Lord, maybe this will be the time I can like these things. And I can't. Now, if I can't make myself like tomatoes, then how in the world... Am I going to achieve this unbelievable supernatural love for Jesus Christ? How is this going to work? Verse 27. Jesus answers that by saying, Now whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, he didn't say, he didn't say, take up my teaching and follow me, which is what 
some people oftentimes will try to do. They'll try to take up his teaching and follow him, and it's just utter failure. You can't do that. I mean, come on. Have you ever read the Bible? Howie, where would you even begin? You, you start in the New Testament. You don't get three passages into the Sermon on the Mount and you're done. You can't do that. He doesn't say, take up my teaching. Because he knows you can't. He doesn't say, uh, take up my example and follow me. Because he knows you can't. He doesn't say, well, take my advice and follow me. He doesn't say that. He says, take up your cross. Now, why? Why does he say that? He says, take up your cross as if to say, put yourself in the place of a condemned criminal. Take up this measure of execution, this symbol of imminent death. In other words, at the moment God saves you, He sees you as brand new because the old you is crucified. That's why you take up a cross and not anything else. It can only be a cross. Nothing else will work. Paul says in Colossians 3, no one understood this more than the Apostle Paul. No one. And again, when you're reading the New Testament from this day forward, you will see these things all in a new way, which all you've heard them all before. But in the context of what I'm saying, you've got to see the gravity of this statement. Paul says, set your mind on things above, not on things of earth, for you died and your life is hidden in Christ. It's with Christ in God, hidden. You're dead. When you take up the cross, God sees you as if you have died to pay the penalty for your own sin. In other words, you, by taking up your cross are dead. The old you dies. It ceases to exist. It is a new creation. That's why you take up a cross. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. You see, Jesus knew no sin. God made Him to be sin for you and me to pay that price, to take up that cross that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. In other words, how is it that God could look at Tony Carnes today and see the righteousness of Christ? Not, not the wretchedness of my past, but the righteousness of Christ. And this is what I want you to see. That I just believe with all of my heart, there are multitudes of people in a multitude of churches who are decided and not devoted. And they never, ever, ever walk in the freedom and the glory of this truth. Because they're not crucified. You see, they just, they just wanted something better. They just wanted something extra. They just wanted to be improved. And so they decided, but you can't do that. Jesus says, you're not my disciple. Unless you take up your cross, you got to be crucified. That's why it is so destructive for people who profess to be Christians to continually beat themselves up over the sins of their past. It is just utterly horrible. I mean, if you're saved this morning, and you're beating yourself up over the sins of your past, there is a 
giant disconnect between the reality of the Bible and your understanding. You have been crucified. Now, you may not be saved, and that's why you may not be free from that. I don't know. But I can tell you, if you're saved, you're free. There's no in the middle. So God sees you and me as His children. He sees us as if we've already been beaten. We've already been flogged. We've already been scourged. And we have been crucified for every sin that has ever been committed. The old self is gone. Galatians 2, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who, what did He do? He loved me and gave Himself for me. You see, it's got to be in the context of love. Jesus didn't go to the cross simply out of duty and obedience to God. Though He did, It wasn't only that, it was in love. So he went out of duty and obedience in love. It was connected, devotion, not decided. So in the same way, he didn't just decide to go to the cross. He was devoted to go to the cross. We too must understand what he is communicating through all of Scripture is in this lens. So when Jesus says, for example, that you're to hate your mother and father, your wife and children, your brothers and sisters, and then he says, yes, and his own self also. See, he kind of sets that apart a little bit. He He wants you to see that especially. Why? Because it's so critical. You see, he doesn't mean hate yourself in some, you know, self loathing, self despairing way. No. Because that would simply cause you to be what? Self-absorbed. A person who just loathes themselves, all they think about is themselves. And that's obviously not what God wants us to do. What He's calling us to in hating our own life is a crucified ego. You see, in, in Christ, the crucified person, the new creation, forgets about the the the... The fact that you, you don't have to, you don't have to earn the people around you's uh, approval. You, you're no longer at the, at the whims of, of what happens. In other words, when you're crucified in your ego and people speak out against you or people persecute you or they overlook you or they demean you or they give your promotion to someone else or you're just devastated for some reason, you don't take that so personally. It doesn't completely crush you because you know that you are totally accepted and loved by the one who matters most. See, that's what crucified is. That your, your ego, I'm, I'm very, very cautious around people and we all know these people and they are so sensitive and whenever you're around them you're walking on eggshells because if you say the wrong thing you're going to hurt their feelings that is a clear sign that their ego has not been crucified you see when you've been crucified and your life is in christ and it completely overshadows everything else. Who cares what other people think? I mean, let's just be honest. And, and why is it this way? 
I mean, in the wisdom of God, He knows it's not going to be easy. I mean, everything about this easy believism Christianity of our culture is completely unwound in this one text. I mean, if it was going to be easy, then why would you need a crucified ego? Why would you need to be crucified? If it was just going to be prosperity and, and everything was going to be good and you're going to have perfect health and your bank account was going to overflow, it wouldn't make any sense. Why a cross? He wouldn't say, take up your cross. He would just say, take up the Bible and go out there and show them what time it is. But you can't do that apart from crucifixion. It won't work. It's impossible. I, I just, I just, I sit and I hear these conversations of people who are unregenerate and who want to use the Bible as some sort of self-help book and, and just uh, apply these principles. And Good luck. Just see how, see how you do in your own strength loving your enemies. I mean, you, you won't get anywhere. Anywhere. All right, next I want you to see that it's, a, it's an irrevocable exchange. Verse 27 also says, Whoever does not bear his cross again and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, another reason Jesus uses the, the, the symbol of the cross as... Uh, a picture of discipleship is because no one survived crucifixion. In other words, it was eminent death. To be crucified is to die. And so the point here is, is that it's not an invitation to change. It's not an invitation to improve. It's not an invitation to give it a good try or to be a better person. Discipleship is like death. It's irrevocable. In other words, you can't turn back. Once you have been crucified, you're dead. You're dead. You can't resurrect the old you. The old me died. And it cannot be brought back to life. He's gone. And I live in newness of life now. And so I, I tell you that because there's always someone in the hearing of my voice that is struggling with this issue of eternal security. Listen. Once crucified... Done. The question is not, can you lose your salvation? The question is, are you certain you're saved? No, you cannot lose your salvation. It is utterly impossible. The old you, at the moment of justification, the moment of salvation, the moment of, of conversion is crucified. That's why you take up a cross. Jesus isn't offering a makeover. He's calling for a takeover. It's a completely different ball game here. Nothing about the old way comes into the new way. So anyone who will approach Jesus and say, well, I'll, I'll follow you if. Sorry. It just doesn't work that way. You cannot be his disciple. You can't. There's no... Halfway, bearing your cross is not in any way going to make your life easy or comfortable or prosperous. Let's just get that. I know you hate that. But it's the truth. It's not. You're going to live a life marked by suffering just like the one 
that you have been called to imitate. That is the life. That's why you have to have a crucified ego. Because it's going to be difficult. And it's not going to be the same journey for everyone. And for some, it's going to be one way. And for another, it's going to be another way. But for me to even entertain the concept that you may or may not make your decision to follow Christ based on how good He's going to be to you in the future is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. In other words, there's only one way. He says, I'm the way. There's no other way. There's one narrow gate. You have to go in by yourself. Few go through. Most people travel through the broad way and go to destruction. And that's your choice. It's either His way or your way. There's no middle way. It's either utter and complete devotion or utter and complete destruction. There's no middle. And so to make that decision based on... Well, is he gonna, is he gonna bless my marriage? Is he gonna bless my finances? Is he gonna, what? That would be like telling your cancer doctor that you're considering taking the medication that he guarantees you if you take it will cure you. If he says you have a 99% chance of survival if you take this treatment. I'm not sure. I'm gonna think about it a while. Because you know, if it's going to make me uncomfortable, I mean, is it going to uh, is it going to mess up my sleep habits? I mean, is my hair going to thin out? And am I going to get any kind of skin problems? Because you know, I'm I'm not very I don't really like that very much. Seriously, I mean, the issue is life or death. The issue is eternity. I mean, I could stand here all day and make the case of how glorious it is and how insane it would be for anyone to say no to this invitation. But I'm not going to stand here and try to coerce you into accepting the invitation by telling you that it's going to make all your problems go away because it's not. But I tell you what it's going to do. Just one thing and then I'm done. It's going to give you what you're lacking to overcome. In other words... You're going to go through difficulty in this world, period, whether you're with Christ or without Him. The difference is, is that when you're His child, you don't go through anything alone. When you're His child, He lead guides and directs you through His Spirit that He gives you. In other words, you recognize that there's always a bigger picture at hand. You recognize that this world isn't all we have. Your hopes and dreams aren't wrapped up in your job or your money or your health or your family or anything else because you have Him. And at any moment, on any day, at any time, for any reason, you can pick this book up, flip it open anywhere you want and read what the God of the universe has to say to you. Or you can do it alone. You can go your way. So Jesus says, here's what the decided look like. Verse 28. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. Lest after he's laid just the foundation, he's not able to finish. And all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, what king is going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while he is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks the conditions of peace. 
So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has, who's not devoted, cannot be my disciple. Jesus is warning again. He's warning in a descriptive way against superficial, half-hearted decisions. He's saying this won't work. Now, what do these two stories have to do with anything? They have everything to do with everything. On one hand, you have a man who the Bible says intended to build a tower. In the second story, you have a king who decided to go to war. war. Both of them made a conscious decision. One, I think I'm going to build a tower. The other, I think I'm going to go to war. And they failed miserably. Why? Because deciding or intending to do something is not going to yield the result that you think it is. It takes devotion. It takes more than that. You can't just, well, in the midst of everything else I have going, I think I'm going to build a a, a tower. I mean, he didn't say build a shed. He didn't say build a sandcastle. He said a tower. In other words, this is going to be a big project. This isn't going to be just, you know, me and my buddies are going to go out after church in my backyard and build a tower. It doesn't work like that. So if I'm going to build a tower, if I'm going to commit my life to building this grand structure, it's going to take some time and some energy and some effort and some thoughtfulness. I need to recognize what cost it's going to take. Do I have the resources to do this? In the same way, this isn't a king who's deciding whether he wants to repaint his throne a different color or get a new robe or polish his jewels. Or he's talking about war with 10,000 people. In other words, these are big decisions, not just add-ons. And what we see today is people flocking into churches and they just want Jesus to make what they're already doing just a little bit better. And you know what? It's not going to work. For a while, they're going to look like they're building. But they'll never finish it. You see, you you can come and you can make a half-hearted decision. And for a while, it'll look like you're building a tower. But you know what? It'll never last. It won't work. How many testimonies last week said that in different ways? Yeah. See, I made a decision. I didn't want to go to hell. I didn't want to, I wanted to be forgiven of my sin. But I wasn't devoted to that. And so I was just going to sort of try to build this little tower on the side. And yeah, along the way, you know, I was around other tower builders. And so I would be able to see other things going on around me. And there were these, you know, some days seemed better than others. But you know what? It finally dawned on me. I'm not ever going to build this tower. It's never going to work. Because I haven't counted the cost. I wasn't devoted. I wasn't fully in. I mean, think about it. Just imagine. All of us have had the experience where we have... Just bent over backwards, just done, done all that we could do to serve someone or to bless someone. Or maybe, maybe some of you amazing husbands in this room have just 
had those experiences where, you know, you clean the whole house and reshingle the roof and your wife comes home and you've got, you know, candles lit and you've cooked a gourmet meal and you have just done everything right, worked all day, planned it all out, got child care, bought her a piece of jewelry, there's chocolates. I mean, come on, you went through all of it. And then she comes in and says, is that all you got? That's all you got? Here's what would happen in my house. Where's the card? Never forget the card. You could buy the biggest diamond in the world. Get a card. It's important. And don't just sign it. Write in it. Just helping you, fellas. Lessons learned the hard way. My point is this. What are you going to do? Come to the end of your life? Come up to this door and start saying, hey, I'm ready to come in, ready to come in. And the God of the universe, who every time you walked into church, you saw a reminder hanging on the wall of what he did to prepare the way for you to come in and dine. He gave everything. There's never even been a sacrifice in the history of the world that came close. And then you're going to come in with half-hearted decision. You're going to come in with just this sort of add-on. I'm going to build a tower. or Maybe I'm going to go to war amongst the other things I'm doing. No. It doesn't work like that. He's all in. See, the question is not, is he devoted? There's the proof of that. The question is, where are we? Devotion is settled on his part. Here's what John Stott says. I could not possibly say anything that would be as good as this. In his book, Basic Christianity, he says, The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict, half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning to undertake to follow Him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of Christendom today, this so-called nominal Christianity. There are large numbers of people that have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder the cynics speak of the hypocrites in the church and dismiss modern religion as escapism. That's what Jesus means by the tower and the king. Those half-hearted commitments to God are just like foolish people who endeavor to do something without ever counting the cost. And so there's these amazing truths throughout Scripture that will just reinforce what happens when ordinary broken people surrender all that they are. And I know that every Sunday this altar is filled with people who don't feel like they have much, but they bring all that they are broken and wounded and shattered and they lay it down at the foot of the cross and God in His unbelievable supernatural love makes them his disciples 
and their life is never the same. Again, listen to Romans chapter 5. Paul says, and not only that, but we also glory. So I wonder how many times you've read this passage and just not got this like this. Look at what it says. That we glory in tribulations. We glory knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. That perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint. And here's the question. Why? What does that mean? How am I going to glory in tribulation knowing that it's going to produce perseverance and then character? How does that not disappoint? And Paul answers that. He says, because the love of God, the devotion of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That at the moment a broken sinner lays all that they have at the foot of the cross, the love of God is poured out in you in such a way that you can then turn and love God in return so that whatever you go through, whatever trial, struggle, tribulation, problem, I mean, listen, every week there's some tragedy, there's some catastrophe, and yet people who love God rise above it and and know the glory of God and don't live for the things of this world and suffer for the glory of God and people come to Christ they come to Christ because they say pastor I knew this person who goes to your church and the most horrible thing happened to him and they didn't even waver they didn't even they they weren't They didn't fall apart. They trusted God in the midst of everything going wrong. I go in the hospital to see them and they're laying in bed, sick as they can be, given a death sentence, reading their Bible. How does that happen? That's how it happens. The love of God poured out in your heart. See, discipleship is emotional because it's positional. You have to understand when you're saved... The position you have in the family of God. The Bible says you're adopted, grafted in as His beloved child. His son or daughter, you belong. You're there, you're accepted. If you know the way God loves you, it will fertilize and grow and just blossom the love within you for Him. The way you love God is by realizing how He loves you. The Bible says in 1 John, we love him because he first loved us. Paul says in Romans, God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were still sinners, we hadn't fixed our problems, we hadn't even begun to fix them, we weren't doing better, we weren't acting right. No, we were still sinners and Christ died for us. And when that sets in your heart, you realize what God did for you and how he loves you and then... This unbelievable love begins to blossom out of your life. Give you one very painful, but so unfortunately true example of this that I deal with constantly. And I want to show you how the love of God will bring freedom to even the deepest wound that you can feel. I want you to imagine that you were, and for some of you, I know that it's not imagining. But for the rest of us, just imagine with me for a second. That as a child, you were abused. 
that when you were vulnerable and unable to protect yourself, when you trusted in other people to protect you, someone that you loved and cared for took advantage of you and hurt you. And it changed you. And you carry that that wound with you wherever you go. It's always there. Now here's my question. How do you get freedom from that wound? I have seen people after people after... I have seen it so many times. I've watched people get free from this right before my very eyes. And I minister to them and counsel them and pray for them according to this exact text. You see, you have two choices when you've been hurt to that degree. Choice number one is the one most people take, and that's to to just actively hate, to grow bitter in your heart. And it's easy to do because what was done to you was so wrong. And so you can just simply justify it every time you think about it. But the truth is there's no freedom in bitterness. And bitterness is like a prison cell and it enslaves you to constantly relive the injustice that's been perpetrated against you. And so in that bitterness, you're held captive. Or you can take this unnatural route, the route that I would implore you to take. And that is, I would say to you, you need to love God more. To which you would look at me like I was crazy. But I would go on to explain to you over weeks and weeks that people who are this broken and this wounded and bitterness seems like the only rational way to respond to such grievous injustice. That when I continually barrage their heart with God's love for them, what happens is they begin to fall head over heels in love with Jesus Christ as their Savior. And Jesus becomes the preeminent love relationship in their life. Now here's what happens. The love that they develop for God eclipses the bitterness that they once held. And though they remember that this has happened, and though oftentimes they still live in community with the one who did it, but for the very first time in their life, they find freedom. Now why? I want you to consider. When you've been wounded like that, one of the reasons why you can't get freedom is because what has happened to you in the past affects all of your current and future relationships. That every love that you have with another person, that past event is brought into it until Jesus Christ. When you fall in love with Jesus, your past has no implication on that relationship. 
for the first and only time in a human life, you can meet Jesus and be fully known. He knows everything about you. He knows everything that's ever happened to you. He knows what you've done and what's been done to you. He knows it all, yet He still completely loves you in utter devotion that is unlike any other. The unconditional love of a Savior obliterates the pain of our past. And in that moment, when the light switch goes off and someone realizes that that past does not affect their current relationship with Christ, that He's not like human love. It's supernatural love. It supersedes your past. It goes over all that. It obliterates everything you once were. I lived in darkness and pain and suffering for so many years. I suffered because my my family was broken, because my past was broken, because everything about me was broken. Everything. And when I got saved, I didn't understand all this. But I gave Him everything I had. And I devoted my life to loving Him. And God began to grow this love for me in such a way. Listen, I became a Christian because I wanted... More than anything, a family. And the text God used to be my story is this one. He showed me that I had to love Him. That was the only way I was going to be a father. That was the only way I could be a husband. Was to be devoted to Him. And so I poured all of my love into Him. And I spent all of my time trying to love Him more and reading His Word and knowing Him and understanding Him and praying to Him and fellowshipping with Him. And that's what God used to make me who I am. How many people just miss this whole concept? How many people are here this morning? who spend hours every week taking their kids from one practice to another, from one event to another. And you don't read the Bible? You don't have prayer time? You're missing it. God's not saying there's anything bad about being a great parent. He's saying, if you really want to be a great parent, you got to make your love for me eclipse all other love. That's what he's saying. And so now, when I sit in my office and someone comes in and they sit down and they start talking to me about the the pain of their past and the brokenness of their spirit, I mean, I, I I can't say to someone who's been abused as a child, I can't say, I know what that's like. But I can say I know the solution because I know where all my brokenness went. I know where all my pain went. I know where all my suffering went. It was crucified. I just took up my cross. The old me died. The new me was born again. And I began to live and love him more than anything else. Listen, I don't, I'm certainly not putting myself up on a pedestal. And there are, there are husbands and fathers in this room that I aspire to be like. But I can tell you this. 
whatever husband I am, whatever father I am, it's all because I love Jesus way more than I do my wife and way more than I do my kids. And that's the truth. So Jesus says, here it is. Nothing hidden, right out in the open. He ends by saying salt is good, but if it loses its flavor, how will it be seasoned? It's neither fit for the land or the dunghill. Men just throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You see, the person who just makes a decision and they're not devoted, that's the person that Jesus is talking to in Revelation chapter 3 when He says, I know your works, you're neither hot or cold. I wish you were hot or cold, but you're not. Because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You're like salt that's lost its flavor. It's no good. Like a man who's building a tower. You won't finish. A king who's leading his people to war. It's going to be utter defeat. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Are you devoted? Let's stand, bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, thank you. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your honesty and openness with us. Thank you for declaring to all of us in this room exactly, exactly what you require of us to be your disciple. Lord God, the invitation is open to all. Those who respond and lay it all down could never in a billion years imagine the gift that they'll receive. And loving you. But Father, I know that my words are insufficient. And Lord God, I pray that right now your spirit would move in this place. And that you would accomplish what only you can do, Lord. I pray that every person breathing would know you love them. You created them. You know everything about them. There's freedom at the cross. There's freedom from yesterday. There's freedom from today. There's a new life that can be lived in you. God, we give you glory and praise. You're such a wonderful, good father. We love you this morning. I pray that you would save the lost here today for your glory. Call your children back to you, Lord God. Pray for the dad. Maybe for the first time he recognizes he needs to love you more than his family for it to be right. For the mom, I pray for the teenager here today who realizes they need to love you more than they love themselves or it's not going to work. Father, may we take up our cross and follow you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The altar's open. If you'd like to come and surrender all, I'd love to.